0: Thank you so much for joining us this week. As everyone should know by now, this is going to be our episode with Recover Alaska. And I would like to start out by saying that this episode does contain subject matters that might be of a personal nature. And I want to give our guest, Kayla, so much credit for coming on and telling her story. And if anything in this story touches you and you are looking for that next step, please, please reach out to Recover Alaska at recoveralaska.org. Welcome to the 49th Meal Podcast. My name is Mitchell Howe and I am your host. I'm going to take you along a journey throughout the state of Alaska where we will meet the men and women that make the food that you love. As we get this episode started... I wanted to let all of our amazing listeners know that AK Coffee Company has graciously given us a discount. So if you do follow along AK Coffee Company and you want to check out a cup of this amazing coffee, please go ahead and go to their website, www.akcoffeecompany.com, and use the discount code 49 Podcast when you're checking out to receive a discount. Thank you so much, AK Coffee Company, for this amazing opportunity for our listeners. All right, everybody, welcome back to the forty-ninth meal. It's sobriety awareness month in Alaska and I have the honor of speaking to a family member of mine who is here to share her journey to sobriety. Miss Kayla Moneypenny, I'll let her introduce herself. Hi, I'm Kayla. And Kayla, how long have you been in the service industry?
1: If you want to get technical, my first job, um, I was 14 and I worked at the Dairy Queen, um, but I didn't actually get into the industry industry until I was 22. I got my first bartending job, um, and so I've been in the industry for almost 10 years.
0: Wow, that's quite a while. I know some people are in and out of it, and some get hooked on it, and they somehow always end up back to it.
1: And that's, the money is one of those things that's very alluring. Um, when I got my first bartending job, um, I had, was teaching preschool and um, not making very much money. I was going through in the middle of a divorce um, and was struggling and realized that um, I could basically do the exact same thing um, at a bar. It's basically the exact same thing as teaching preschool. Get up off the floor. Yes, you peed your pants. You're going home. <laughs> It's
0: sad how true that is.
1: And in, um, I remember my first bartending job. Um, it was I was training under somebody else. It was the first my first shift ever, and um, I wasn't expecting to get paid because you don't really, you know, when you get when you train, you don't technically have to get paid. But I left with a hundred bucks cash in my pocket, and going from somebody who is making a little bit more than minimum wage was making fourteen dollars an hour teaching preschool, and that was with an associate's degree. I realized how much more money I could make in the bar industry and the restaurant industry. And so I ran with it and I had already kind of been dealing with, um, some drinking problems. I mean, drinking runs in our family, you know that. Oh yes. um, <laughs> And, um, yeah, so being in the bar and it felt, it felt normal. It felt, um, I mean, I was raised in bars and my drinking just kind of, um, you know, it was everywhere. And I didn't have to be at work until, you know, usually four or five o'clock in the evening. So if I got off work at two, I could still drink until five or six in the morning, get enough sleep and go back and do it all over again.
0: And how old were you when you had your first drink?
1: I was 14. Yeah. My sister um, had been dating a guy whose parents owned a liquor store and he had had a heart attack and passed away and they were closing the liquor store down. And so his house was just full of boxes of alcohol (laughs) And I had gone over to my sister's house with him and they had gone to watch a movie in another room or something. And I ended up picking the prettiest bottle I could find and sat and drank almost the entire thing by myself, which is looking back, not a very good sign. Um, But I picked tarantula of all things. Oh. Yeah, but it it was really pretty.
0: (laughs) And and it's, it's very, I will say for tequila, it's very light compared to yeah. some of the other ones so it is isn't instant regret and in question every decision you've ever made in your life
1: to that point
0: <laughs> at least not till the next morning
1: oh yeah that was rough I um I was puking and I uh, was bracing myself with the towel bar puking and ripped the towel bar out of the wall
0: and <sighs> how, how did you oh. know your drinking was becoming a problem and what were the red flags you've seen in yourself or others said they've seen in you?
1: Um, to be completely honest, I think everyone else saw the red flags a lot, a lot sooner than I did. Um, but I think looking back, it was a, a point of um, contention in every relationship I ever had. And I always chalked it up to, oh, they just don't want me to go out and hang out with other people. I mean, there were a lot of red flags. I, I lived in a very bad neighborhood in Seattle, outside of Seattle. I was working and living in white center, which oh. for those Ooh. of you know, that know the Seattle area, it's mm. not so white and it's not so center. <laughs> yep. And, I know that area. And I remember, um, my roommate one morning, uh, waking me up and she was like, we, you know, we, we really need to talk. And I said, well, what? And she goes, well, you were passed out drunk in the bushes across the street. And Corey, who's her boyfriend, who's, you know, six, four and huge, he's like, Corey had to go out and grab you. He recognized your shoes. And it's like, I think I look back at that and it makes me just want to, I I am so upset that I put myself in those situations.
0: Yeah, that's, all, that's always a dangerous area where you get to that point. And did you notice you were drinking more to blackout or more of a social social scene that just kind of would spiral
1: see and that's that's the whole thing is I have learned that I am not one of those people that can just go and have one or two drinks if I'm going to drink I'm going to drink until I black out and that's just it you know and as much as I want it to just be for the fun time and for the social experience that's not what it is for me and I think that that's what um what kind of separates what we call the normies um and then there's us addicts who just can't do that now, I know I tend to do it myself. I'm not proud of it,
0: but cuz I really don't drink a lot anymore. I had my fun days. But do you notice you kind of see the signs and get more on alert with other people than you do yourself now that you're you're in sobriety?
1: I'm sorry, can you restate the question?
0: Uh, like Now that you're in sobriety, do you see those signs and get more on alert and get more in tune to the signs where maybe a close
1: friend or somebody you know is having
0: a problem now that you're in sobriety?
1: Um, I would say yes, but I try not to be judgmental because if there's anything that I've learned on this journey to recovery is that everybody's addiction looks different and everyone's recovery looks different. and. I think that it's one thing for me to be cognizant and to be very aware of um, the people around me and their behaviors, because I have learned that you are the company you keep, you know? So if I'm choosing to go hang out with somebody who wants to go to the bar, you know, to hang out and to have fun every single time, those are not the kind of people that I'm going to be choosing to to spend my time with. It's, it's caused me to be a lot more selective because I am aware of of other people's behaviors and how their behaviors can ultimately affect my behavior if I let it.
0: Yeah, that's a very tough scenario to be in. And especially when you live in remote areas like we do, that sometimes that's really about the only thing people want to go do.
1: Well, in all reality, it's sometimes the only thing people see that as an option to do you know, it's like, oh, well, it's too cold outside to go do anything or it's raining or, you know, and I think that in Alaska, especially, I got very complacent about that and was able to blame everything on the weather or, you know, this or that. But at the end of the day, drinking is such a huge part of, of our culture, not just as Alaskans, but as Americans. I mean, you can't turn on the TV without seeing, you know, a bunch of beautiful women, you know, dancing with a Corona in their hands or, you know, Bacardi or whatever. It's, it's, we're, we're made to think that instant good time, just open a bottle. When in all reality that works, that works for some people, some people can have, you know, a fun Friday night out and have a couple of drinks and then that can be it for months. But I mean, I feel like in, in our society, we have just so let this, um, Kind of half-assed alcoholism that a lot of people seem to have, especially with COVID. It's it's gotten a little out of control, I think. Yeah, because I know experience that. It's not always a good time. I,
0: I'm going. I'm going to be interested to see as these lockdowns start re- coming up again, and people are able to do more to see what the total effect of all of the these mandates and everything is for better or for worse we can put that aside but for some people being locked down is gonna exacerbate so many of their social and mental issues that I can see a lot of people turn into the bottle more than being able to go out and do something to get their mind off of that stuff absolutely
1: absolutely and I and my sister is a is somebody who I look up to a lot when it comes to my sobriety. She's um, she's been sober for years now and she managed to, um, to stay sober through this pandemic, even being locked up with her two ones, one's 12 and one's 15 and they're turds. (laughs) And she's like, you know, I managed to stay sober through all this and I am so ridiculously proud of her for that because my alcoholism was at its absolute worst during COVID. And that was what ultimately led me to reach out for help because I was, you know, being hospitalized for my drinking and I was living alone and there was nobody to be accountable to. And I was a disaster. I'll be completely honest. So that kind of
0: was leading into my next question is what was the final straw that made you decide it was time to stop drinking?
1: So it's hard to talk about, but I'm, I'm really wanting to share my story because There are so many people out there struggling and I, and I want them to know that they're not alone, um, in October of last year. So I'm going to back up a little bit. Um, um, I had been struggling with my drinking pretty much since that first drink at 14, I started going to parties at 15, you know, and then I became a bartender and, um, the drinks, the drinks were always flowing. And I feel like it's almost shameful that I feel like my name almost became synonymous with like a party or just kind of a mess. Um, but last in July of 2019, I left a three-year long relationship with a man. I thought I was going to marry. Um, and I had a business that was failing. Um, and I moved out and I moved into my, on my own for the first time in my entire life. Um, and that's when I really kind of learned how codependent I really am. And in living alone, I drank my sorrows. I ended up getting a DUI in August of 2019, Um, and instead of letting that, um, be my, my rock bottom and my wake up call, I proceeded to drink very, very heavily. I was arrested two times between, um, I got, I got arrested for my DUI and then I was arrested in, in, uh, December, um, for violating the conditions of my release and drinking. (laughs) So I'm going to back it up a little bit. Um, I'm sorry, it's, no, it's, take, it's, take take your time, this is your story, take your time. So back in September, I got reconnected with a cousin of mine um, who's very active in the NA community. Um, and I credit a lot of my um, sobriety to him because he was there for me through a lot. And shout out to Pedro, I love you bro. He took me to the hospital. I I thought I had a seizure. I was withdrawing from alcohol and got very sick. And it was very, very scary. Um, and I went to the emergency room. Um, this was actually August or October 30th. It was the day before Halloween. And um, they asked me then if I wanted to go into rehab. And I said, no, 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 you know, and basically let them make me feel better. They gave me some, um, uh, some meds to help with the withdrawals and um, an IV. And I went home and I was sober for maybe a week and a half. And then you forget all of the it's, it's it really is a very toxic fucked up relationship because you know a little time goes past and you forget about all the horrible things that they put you through and you want to go back for more because you love them and um it's I ended up drinking again and then um in back in in uh I'm sorry in December after Christmas I went on a week-long bender um, was very emotionally at the end of my rope. I was not, I did not want to commit suicide. I just wanted to talk to somebody. I needed somebody to tell me that it was going to be okay. And I called, um, the troopers hoping to be connected to, I don't know, a hotline or something. And they sent, um, three troopers to my house. I was arrested um, and put on suicide watch at the jail, even though I never committed a threatened to commit suicide. I was put on suicide watch, and um, they took all my clothes and put me in this big vest. And it was the worst experience of my life. And yet again, I get out of jail, and I was actually sober for I, I, I did a go into outpatient treatment um, for that following that incident, and I was sober for maybe a month. Um, and I can, but then I continued on um, drinking and then COVID hit. Um, I dropped out of my outpatient program and, um, proceeded to drink very heavily. I ended up in a detox center in May. Um, and I was going to go to rehab, um, in down in Saldana, they have a program, you go to the detox center and then you go into their inpatient program. And I didn't want to go. So I, um, I spent three days in detox. And then when I felt better, I checked myself out and, um, I went back there um, in September of this last year and ended up doing 35 days at Serenity House, um, and it, it saved my life. What is,
0: is it a problem? Because, I mean, I can't say I've ever been in those shoes, but you were talking about how it's an abusive relationship and you keep going back to it. Does it drag, how does it play mentally, I guess, on when you pick up that bottle again, is it like self-guilt or is it self-pleasure? If that makes sense. Like when when, you're, when you, you, you're trying doing it on your own, you said you get stopped and then you realize you picked that bottle up again.
1: It's always shameful. You feel ashamed, you know? And I think that one of the differences between me getting sober this time than last time is I'm telling people this time. I'm really telling people because I want the people in my life to hold me accountable. I mean, before it was like, yeah, I'd tell a couple of people, I'm getting sober, I'm doing it. And then nobody was surprised when they saw me drunk, you know, a week later at the bar or whatever. But I think that's part of why I've wanted to, to do your podcast too, was like, Hey, like I'm, this is what I'm doing with my life now. Like I want you guys to all know, I want you guys to understand. And I mean, cause it's, it's little things that I don't think, People think about, you know, and it's like at work, it's always so awkward. Everybody wants to go have drinks after work. And it's like, I don't, I'm, I don't ever go because I don't want to be in a bar, you know, and it's like there's another part of me that feels like I'm missing out on all these social experiences, but I don't, I don't want to, I just, I don't want to drink anymore. I just don't. I feel like that part of my life is over. And I mean, my boyfriend and I got into a big fight a couple days ago and I was so proud of myself for not driving to the liquor store and buying something because that's what I would do in any stressful situation. And I think a lot of it is learning how to cope and how to process those emotions without alcohol, because it is, all it does is numb you out. You don't have to think about it. You can think about having a fun time, you know, but at the end of the day, all those problems that you brushed off are still there, if not bigger and more festering than before, because you fucked it all off. And then you're stuck with all sorts of emotions, guilt, fear, shame. It's, and I think that, I don't know, that's the biggest thing in all of this is me learning how to just sit with my feelings.
0: And now, I know a lot of people have a hard time wanting to go into rehab. Is it, from from your point of view, when you were going through this process, was it the fear of the unknown or the fear of losing that relationship?
1: Um, I think my, one of my biggest fears of going into treatment was what am I going to do with my house? What am I going to do with my car? What am I going to do with my bills? Um, that was my biggest stress going into treatment. Um, but luckily, I mean, this is double-edged sword. My drinking had gotten so bad and between. So COVID, I, um, COVID hit, I moved out of my apartment. In May, my lease was upset and I wasn't working. So I moved out and I was um, staying with my boyfriend. That went sour. Um, and I'd come back and I was staying with my cousin Pedro. So luckily, I was at a point where my drinking had kind of caused me to not really have a whole lot of responsibilities at that time. Um, and in going into treatment, I was terrified. You know, I didn't know what the people were going to be like. I didn't know, you know, if I was going to sleep at night. I mean, I have problems sleeping places that aren't my bed. And I can honestly say I was terrified that the first, probably two days, but honestly, looking back, I met some really great people. I made some really good friends and I learned a lot about myself. It was a chance to really, um, take a step back and really, um, put myself first for the first time. And I thought, I thought drinking was self-care. That was my self-care, but I really learned what self-care was. Self-care is setting boundaries setting boundaries with the people around you, setting boundaries with yourself, setting goals, crushing those goals. That's self-care. Self-care is not a glass of wine after work. Like, fuck what you think. Like that's not self-care.
0: Yeah, that's, it's so hard. I mean, I, I've dealt with mental health issues more than necessarily, um, addiction issues, but it's, that that seeking out treatment. I know for me it was that fear of the unknown, and then X Y Z, my rent, my bills, my family, and a lot of mine too was for me was uh, social judgment. What what am I going to tell my friends? Because I wasn't ready to tell everybody everything yet. And it was like, what what am I going to tell the people I know? Are they going to judge me? And
1: see, and I and I don't I. I... I think that, um, my actions when I was drinking, there's no way that anybody could not have known that I was an alcoholic. You know what I mean? Like, I think coming out and getting help, like I said, I wasn't, I I have never tried to sugarcoat my drinking. That is one thing. Like I have been completely honest with everyone in my life about it. And because, I mean, like I, I said, I really didn't think I had that big of a problem. I thought I liked to have fun, you know, whatever. I just like to have fun. But I did also, um, I received a a mental health diagnosis when I was in treatment of um, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety and depression. And I think a lot of my drinking was self-medication. And now that I know that I have a dual diagnosis of alcohol problems, you know, alcohol addiction and these mental health um, things, I can focus on those and um, I think addressing those issues has helped a lot with my drinking and my urges and being able to deal with my emotions in a healthy manner.
0: And now, when you went into rehab, I know we all heard horror stories and stuff, but for you, what was the um, emotional toll of having to deal with some of this stuff in the physical toll? Because I know alcohol can be very physically challenging to get over.
1: So, physically, um, in rehab, I got fat. I gained 40 pounds. I've gained 40 pounds since I quit drinking in September. Um, that being said, I was also very, very, very skinny. That was the toll that alcohol had taken on my body. I was at 5'11. I was down to 125 pounds, which is not a good look. <laughs> but in treatment, I was able to get my health back on track. Um, I was given, you know, a lot of supplements, vitamins, B1, your vitamin, your body totally lacks that, um, or B12 is B12, something like that. Um, it's in my, it's in my cabinet somewhere. Um, but getting your health back on track after, you know, putting your body through the ringer, it's, it's crazy because I think back to all of the crap I put my body through and I was fine. And they, and this is something that they, that they talk about, they talked about in rehab too, is you'll notice once you get sober, your body starts falling apart because you've been masking it for so long with drugs and alcohol. That, that went to homeostasis, that's when people start discovering health problems that they never knew they had.
0: And was that a scary or a relieving process to kind of get get those things revealed, if that makes sense?
1: Um, it was scary because I was really concerned that I had done some serious liver damage because I mean, I was drinking this summer. I was drinking a half gallon of of Captain Morgan a day. Wow. And when I moved back down to the peninsula, it got a little bit better. And I was drinking like maybe like a half a fifth and a 12 pack of, of white Claw every day. So, I mean, drinking that much, I was like, there's no way that I came out of this unscathed, you know, like there's gotta be something wrong with me, but even my doctor here was, she's like, you drink heavily for 10 years. She was like, and your body's fine. Like, she's like, your body is an amazing thing. She's like, your liver levels are normal. Everything's normal. But I read a book um, when I was in treatment that it was the first few days I was in treatment, I was assigned to read it. And it's called, it's a book called under the influence and it's an old book, um, but it's very effective. It literally breaks down at each stage of alcoholism, what you're doing to your body. And I cried. And, uh, that was, that was the book that really made me realize that I had a problem and that it needed to be fixed or I was going to die.
0: That, that's a very thought. <laughs> I mean, the, just having to come to the reality of knowing what, what you could have done or what would have happened.
1: Right. Right. And, and, and the thing is, is that I've tried to look at it in the sense that, I, okay. I have this problem. I have this disease of alcoholism. How do you treat the disease of alcoholism with you? I mean, you treat it the way that you would treat cancer, the way that you would treat, you know, any other illness or disease. I mean, you can't just ignore it. I mean, if, if you just got diagnosed with lung cancer, would you go out and buy a carton of cigarettes? Probably not. Right. But as an alcoholic, it's like, you want the thing that's killing you. You need the thing that's killing you.
0: Yeah, that's, I I can't imagine being in that situation. And I, I know I've said it to you several times. I'm very proud of everything you've done because it's, and I know for us growing up, we, we grew up with alcoholism as just an everyday part of our life. And I didn't
1: know that I didn't know that everyone, every family didn't have a half gallon of R&R by their coffee maker. Yeah. That was, I thought that that was a totally normal thing.
0: Yeah. We, I mean, for us, 12 pack of empty cans laying on the coffee table and a half empty bottle of black velvet was, oh, it's a Monday morning. Like, and
1: that's how, that's how I used to know it was time to get ready for school because dad would roll over and he always had bush bush light and he didn't even refrigerate it. It was just by his, by the couch that he slept on. And that's how I knew it was time to get up in the morning when dad would crack that first beer. Like, okay, it's time to get up. Now, do you think
0: growing up in that environment made it easier to excuse your own behavior?
1: I wouldn't say that I've used it as a justification, but it definitely desensitized me because I mean, Even when I was 18, 19 years old and living on my own, I was drinking shower beers and stuff like it was totally normal, even though I wasn't legally able to buy alcohol, you know? And that was just because that was something that was so normal growing up. Those things were all normalized. Like it was normal to go, you know, I don't know. You can justify anything, you know, like I said, growing up, I thought a lot of things were normal that were not. And I completely have recreated my childhood in my adult life, which makes me disgusted. Because I have I wanted so badly to change the way that I, I that I grew up, and, and
0: I know. Speaking of mm-hmm. that, I mean it was. I know we pretty much grew up that our family was not social drinkers. It was from that first beer to blackout, and that was just associated with drinking. We didn't grow up where mom and dad might have a glass of wine at the dinner table and call it good. I mean, for the longest time, I didn't know people drank just for
1: fun. Right. People, because our family doesn't casually drink.
0: It's all or nothing.
1: (laughs) And that's how, unfortunately I, I got that. I have that gene and I'm very grateful that, um, I'm, I was able to recognize it and fix it now before it really ruined my life. Um, my mom has been a, um, drug addict since I was, very, very young. And, um, I've seen her completely ruin her life. She doesn't have a relationship with her children. She doesn't have a relationship with her grandchildren. She doesn't really have a relationship with anyone in her family. And I don't want that to be me.
0: Uh, it, it it's a scary thought because I mean, for, for us, that's just, it's what we know as much as it, it's a lot like with, uh, physical or emotional abuses. If you know it, it's hard to break it because that's in a sick way that's your comfort zone well and
1: like i said it's a bad relationship and now i know by
0: all means i want to say this is i i have worked on myself of not getting into this mindset but i know a lot of people try to play off that addiction is not a disease because it's easy to say oh well just don't pick up a bottle you did this to yourself don't don't put a needle of heroin in your arm what is how, how do you help people overcome that mentality of not realizing what actual addiction is if they haven't been in those shoes
1: so I would definitely say that um addiction is a disease it really is and it's easy to say just don't do it. But the thing is, is that I know in my case, there was a lot of extre- extraneous factors. Um, you know, my, my dual diagnosis of having PTSD um, that make certain, um, certain people more vulnerable to addiction. Um, the fact that both of my parents are addicts, its two strikes against me right off the bat. You know, and then you add in um, depression, anxiety, PTSD, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I'm set up for failure, you know, and I wonder all the time what, what, how different my life would be if I had been adopted to a family that didn't drink. I've thought about this so many times, like, you know, nurture versus nature, like say my mom gave me up for adoption and I was adopted into a family of Mormons, you know, would I be Mormon? Would I still wanna drink? Would I still have these urges? How much of this was the environment I was raised in and how much of this is just who I am and what I, you know and like I said, if it was cancer and it was a cancer gene you know, I would still have cancer regardless. So I think that for people that say it's not a disease obviously haven't been touched by by it themselves because I know when I was in treatment I was one of the only people in treatment that was there for just alcohol. I've never really, I mean, I've dabbled in other drugs, but I've never, I mean like cocaine and stuff, but I've never liked it, you know? And um, drugs were never my thing, even though they were always around. I, that, like I said, that just drinking is my drug of choice. Um, And a lot of the people that I was in treatment with came from good homes, you know, they came from, two parents who loved each other very much. And, you know, they had this great life and they still ended up addicts. And to me, that was the one thing that I was so surprised by how addiction can touch these, these, these kids that have been doing it since they were young. You know, I was in there with a 24 year old who had been shooting heroin since he was 16 years old. Wow. And to me like that, not to say that my drinking is any worse because I think that drinking gets a kind of a, a People second guess it because it's just something alcohol is so prevalent everywhere. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, you just drink too much. Just stop drinking, you know? But I mean, I think that we need to start really delving into why people are are becoming addicts. And I strongly believe that the opposite of addiction is connection and that people get stuck in addiction because they're lonely and it just causes Mm -hmm. them to be lonelier. I mean, it's, it's a vicious circle. And I know that from my personal experience, when my addiction, when I was an active addiction, and it was at its worst. I wanted so badly for people, for social, for people to be around me, but I was no longer drinking socially and no one wanted to be around me. And so I drank for company and ended up feeling lonely, intense loneliness. It's a very addiction is it for those who have not have that problem. I'm so very, very, very glad for you because it's a really hard place to be in to feel all alone and to know that the reason that you feel all alone is all your fault
0: yeah that's really hard I think on everyone because I think even family members friends that know are with an addict or around one they know it but they don't want to acknowledge it because they get frustrated and it's easier to blame it off on, oh, you're just making poor choices over dealing, having to like you. You use the cancer thing uh, analogy a lot of realizing your friend or family member has a disease just as deadly as cancer. So I think it's easier to blame the other person than have to deal with the situation in a way.
1: But then, but then that's the hard part about it too is when you. When you do have somebody in your life in your family in your family or friend or whatever that's struggling, I mean when you you don't want to push them away because everybody's that's not what I mean that you don't want to push them away it's a you have to be tactful about bringing it up with somebody because you don't want it to be taken the wrong way. are you understanding what I'm saying yeah not the way I'm trying to yeah it's a delicate subject, and yeah. and, and I and know everybody that everybody has to deal with it on
0: their in their own way. But if you're trying to help a family member or a friend, you don't want to shame them and cause more loneliness. That's just going to exacerbate the problem.
1: Well, and I know from my personal experience that um, I talked about going to rehab for a year over over a year before I actually did it. And I have a friend, a very good friend um, who um, is sober from narcotics and she had helped me. She actually went to the same treatment facility that I had gone to before. And I remember her telling me back in in January when I started that outpatient program, she was like, Kayla, just go, go in because you're going to, if you don't go, you're going to be six months from now, you're going to look at yourself and be like, why didn't I do that? I could have, I could be sober for six months right now. And damn hard if she wasn't right. Because that happened in January, and I checked myself into rehab in September.
0: Are you active like in a twelve step program, or what? What care is there for people? Because I know when you get out, there's a lot of refining who your friends are, your family, that you can be around and stuff, and setting those boundaries. Are you part of a twelve step program, or do you do any other type of program? Because I know. Some people have a bad indotation of 12 step.
1: So I will say I do not go to 12 step meetings. I don't, they're not personally, they're not for me. And I know they work for a lot of people. If they work for you, go by all means, go. Um, I've gone to several over the years. Um, and my whole mentality is I'm not willing to say I am nothing. You know what I mean? I feel like a lot of those meetings, they want to break you down to build you back up. And I'm sorry, but I've spent enough of the last 15 years of my life, breaking myself down. I don't need anybody to help me do that. (laughs) But I, I, I understand the basis of it, which is meeting people that don't drink. Um, that you can connect with and, and be on the same vibe with. I think I took my 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 recovery a little bit differently in that I knew that even be that being sober back home on the peninsula was not going to be effective for me. I was not going to stay sober down there. So I moved um across the state to sitka the lovely little island of sitka. Oh sitka <laughs> and um I think that starting over was a big part of that. Having a fresh start. Um, not having people that think they know my story. And so far it's been really effective. Last Saturday, I celebrated five months sober.
0: Congratulations.
1: Thank you. Um, and I have no desire to drink and, and I think a lot of that has to do with, um, I don't, I don't have any memories of drinking here. You know what I mean? I don't have those kind of triggers
0: yeah there there's no comfort zone
1: right right so i feel really confident in the fact that like i get so at work i work at an office now which is a totally different environment than a bar um and you know when people are like oh yeah let's go you know have a drink after work or whatever i just say i don't drink and it's just as simple as that like i don't drink these people don't have any knowledge of me you know what i mean they don't they don't know who Kayla was six months ago. They don't know that, you know, all the shame and the guilt that I I still have um, attached to, you know, my my illness and my addiction. And it's I don't know, they say a lot in, in in treatment that they call it geographical. You know, if you you're still wherever you go, there you are. But I really do feel like addressing the issues. I mean, I'm on antidepressants and anxiety medication now. Um, I have a lot of, of ways to calm myself down when I get upset or, or, you know, my mind starts racing and things like that. I have these new tools and I feel like a new person and I hope someday I'll be able to go back home to live and be comfortable, be comfortable in that. But right now I'm I'm really busy recreating the new Kayla, the Kayla who is on time to work every day because she's not hungover. And I'm saying this with a huge smile on my face because I love the person that I'm becoming. And I've hated myself for so long for the choices that I made when I was drinking. And I'm so proud that the little girl inside of me who has been shoved down for so long, by all of life circumstances, you know, she's finally able to, to take a stand and say, no, this is my life and this is what I want and this is how I'm gonna get it. And I would never be able to do that while I was drinking.
0: Yeah, the geological thing is that that's such a special place in my heart because with um, everything that went on with my family, you, you know, a lot of the details. I, I still, to this day, I get physically sick just the thought of flying through Seattle. Even just going through the airport, there's so many bad memories in bad jujus attached to Washington for me that I can't it's one of those places I just can't go to because I know it's going to trigger trigger stuff in me so I understand that part completely with any type of addiction that you can't go back to where you were and expect things to change overnight
1: right and it's It's one of those hard things too, because my my boyfriend is a fisherman. He fishes in Kenai, and I would like to be able to spend some time with him this summer. And in order to do that, I would have to fly down to Kenai for like a week or something, which is not. It's not like that's not doable, but I'm not even comfortable doing that right now. Like the 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 idea, the idea of being in Kenai, I can't picture myself there without a drink in my hand.
0: Yeah, it's. I know for me, it just even just talking about it now just raises anxiety like crazy just the thought of being around seattle
1: and and i'm right there with you when i think about kenai (laughs) and it's hard because that's my home just like washington is your home
0: yeah it's how was the process of detaching from people that maybe you considered friends at the time because i know that's a big scary thing for a lot of people starting over is you don't know anyone, you don't, you barely know you at that point. How do you detach from that? I, I don't want to say negative influence, but people that might not care for your sobriety as much as you do.
1: So for me, luckily, um, I didn't really have to go through much of that because I moved. Um, and so I still talk to a lot of my friends, you know, text messaging, you know, Facebook. Phone calls, whatever, but for the most part, I've noticed a lot of the people that I thought were friends, I'm not friends with. I don't talk to anymore. They don't really give a shit what I'm doing. And that's okay. You know, honestly, that's okay. Because I'm at the point in my life where I don't want a hundred pennies. I would rather have four quarters. So I'll keep my quarters in my pocket, and that's that's all I need. You know, all you need is a few, few good people in your corner, you know, and and I'm learning, and I'm learning that. I mean, I mean, you've lived in Sitka. You know how kind of clicky and hard it is to make friends. COVID has made that even more difficult.
0: Yes, it's amazing because it's such a nice, friendly town. But at the same time, it's hard to get on deep levels with people.
1: Yeah, it's it's been difficult. But I'm learning to enjoy my own company, which is something that I have never never done before. And one of my favorite things has, has become in the evenings. I will take a bath and I will fill up the hot water two or three times, you know, I'll take like a three hour bath drives my boyfriend nuts. Cause he can't <laughs> use the bathroom, but that's, that's my self-care. That's my glass of wine at the end of the night. You know, that's my, my chill, my chill down, relax, um, I've learned how to really kind of live my life differently. And I think one of the biggest, one of my personal misconceptions about drinking, I thought that if I got sober, my life would just be perfect. Everything would be just peaches and I'd be floating around on a pink cloud all the time. Turns out that's not true. My problems are still here. I'm just sober and able to deal with them in a more clear-minded and precise manner, which I'm grateful for because in my drinking, I was very, very irresponsible. I mean, please. I'm still cleaning up my, that mess that I've made for myself financially, but that's okay.
0: And now if you could go back all that time to that 14 year old Kayla, uh, what is, what advice would you give yourself in practice, in practical terms?
1: Um, to know the people around you and know their intentions and, um, to really think about, um, think about the choices that you make because one thing I ask myself all the time now is, is this conducive to the life I'm building? Um, I recently um, was given the opportunity to work uh, at a bar. I applied to, uh, to be a waitress um, and they saw my bartending experience and wanted me to be a bartender. Mm -hmm. And I reluctantly agreed. um, And then once the time started closer to approaching to when I was supposed to start, I messaged her and I just said, I'm not, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to do that. Um, yet. And that was because I asked myself a question about it. And that was, is this conducive to the life I'm building? And the answer was no, plain and simple. And so I think if, if 14 year old Kayla asked herself that question, she might've made different choices in her life. But I will say that my choices have led me to where I am. And I think that it's all part of, of the master plan and I'm just going with it because it's, it's working.
0: I, I can say, just from when I've talked to you, it's, it's amazing and it's inspiring to hear how far you've came. I mean, I, I want to give you just unlimited credit on that.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And, and
0: I mean, it, it ain't, for our listeners, me and Kayla, our cousins, we, by no ma- stretch of the imagination would I say we're very close and that we talk every day, we know each other's whole lives, but through family, you hear different things and stuff, and I want to, in just the environment we grew up in, I, I have nothing but admiration for how far you've came.
1: Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. It's It's been a lot of hard work, and a lot of of um, what I thought were sacrifices, but if I can say anything, if anybody's listening, and they're struggling right now, get help. It's out there, and it gets better. I promise. Now, can you see yourself ever
0: going back into the service industry? Or do you think that's just a chapter that you've had to close the door on and move on from?
1: Um, I would love to be able to go back um, into serving or bartending um, at some point in time when I'm ready. Um, I, I know that I'm not ready at this point in time. But I I miss the social aspect of it. But then again, I've never bartended sober. So, I mean, and I'm sure everybody has been the sober one around a bunch of drunk people. It's not very fun.
0: And now, do you, I know some people and some people do, some people don't. What is your feelings on like mocktails if you are in a social setting? Or are they too close to a trigger for you?
1: Um, so I was never really a cocktail drinker anyway. Okay. Um, I was more of like a shots and like something to kind of casually sip. So for me, I, I drink club soda. That's my go-to cause it reminds, I mean, it's, it, it just tastes like cheap, weak beer. <laughs> um, but I've always loved club soda. So that's my go-to. I actually just ordered a soda stream because, um, buying, cans of club soda or it's getting very expensive here on the island
0: but um just wrapping up is there anything else you want to just let somebody know that might be in your shoes that you were in when you got sober and is maybe scared shitless to take
1: that next step so when I started this journey back in September I told myself I honestly didn't think I was even going to get sober I was just It was what was the circumstances had had boiled down to where it worked out, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna go. And I told myself, I still remember the drive from the intake office to Serenity House, and I remember thinking to myself, like, I'm gonna give this a year. I'm gonna give this a year, and if things, you know, don't get better, I can go back to doing whatever I was doing before. Whatever, give it a year. Five months in, I have the best job I've ever had in my life. Uh, I have a. Relationship with a wonderful man and alcohol does not cloud our, our conversations or in our arguments or anything like that. I mean, that is amazing. I mean, things are, things are good. And I wouldn't have any of this right now if I was still drinking, I wouldn't have money in my savings account. I wouldn't have my bills paid off. My credit cards paid off. Like I'm in a really good place right now. And I want to keep this going. And for any of you out there that are struggling, like I said, it gets better. It gets better. And, you know, I, like I said, I'm not a big meetings person, but they work for a lot of people. And it's a great place to start. If you're questioning, you know, you're drinking, being out of control or, you know, or just wanting to slow down. Like you, I mean, it's, this we it's a beautiful life and you don't need to spend it cloud clouded under alcohol all the time and I'm not going to say that it's all roses because there are times when I want to have a drink and I think oh my god this would be so much funner with the drink and then I think about the hangovers and hospital stays and and that that's it gets better (laughs) I promise
0: (laughs) well thank you so much, Kayla, for coming on and telling your story. I hope we've inspired somebody to maybe take that next step, look into where that nearest meeting or that treatment center is. One thing I think we can both comfortably say living here in Alaska is alcohol is probably more of a prevalent issue here than maybe a lot of other places just because of the environment we live in
1: exactly no it it definitely it definitely is and I think it's one of those things where a lot of people drink too just with normal activities you know things I mean being outside you know I remember my dad he couldn't couldn't do anything outside unless he was drinking but then it's I don't I don't know (laughs) that was stupid
0: (laughs) no I don't know it's it it is I mean it's just it's a part of Unfortunately, it's a part of life up here. I mean, you, you have brutal winters. All what you want to do is stay inside and drink. Then when you have summers that are, I mean, granted, like the peninsula in the valley here, we don't have 24 hours of light, but we got 22 hours of light. And I know myself, it's easy to drink until 2, 3 in the morning and not realize it's 3.30 in the morning yet.
1: Um well the my, the shocking thing to me when I first moved back to the peninsula from Seattle where I had been bartending I was out um out one night with a bunch of my friends it was a saturday night and it was probably like I I looked at my my phone and my phone said it was 1:30 and I was like shit better order a bunch of drinks now because they're going to call last call well it's close to two o'clock and the waitress comes up to our table and clears our glasses and asks if we wanted anything else I was like oh I was like I didn't hear you call last call and she's like we're not we're open until five and I was like this is not going to be good (laughs) and I was yeah and that's how you end up out until five o'clock in the fucking morning it's not safe (laughs) there's no reason that anybody should be out drinking until five in the morning
0: Amen. Well, we will let you go, Kayla. Like I said, thank you so much for being brave and coming on and telling your story. I know it's not an easy story to tell all the time. So thank you, and I hope you know that somebody listening to this might be inspired. I hope so.
1: Have a catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row. Dreaming of something better. Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer.